Nintendo. I remember Nintendogs. I vaguely do. It was one of the games that kind of got the original DS off the ground. Oh, that's what it was. This is when, um, what was it called? Brain Academy? Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. That was Brain, Brain Academy was, uh, <clears throat> that was like the original DS game. Like that and the remake of Super Mario 64. I remember there were like four games that were the only reason people bought a Bra- DS. I think, like it was called, I think it was called Brain Age. Brain Age, not Brain Academy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's like Nintendogs, Brain Age, the remake of Super Mario 64. Um, those were kind of the big ones, yeah, up front. Yeah. So I think that's as good as a good start of any. Sure. Yeah. Let's just get this going. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready when you are. No, that was that was that was it. Yeah, we're live. We're starting it with Nintendogs. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. Do you have any old uh, PC games you like? You know, like during during your formative years, like in the sense that I still play them. No, no. Like, what, what was a big like? Other than uh, I, I don't get what you guys, uh, what young people did with Counter Strike and Half Life Two, and I think those are actually the same game. Um, well, like, Counter Counter Strike is a mod of Half Life, but please continue. Sure. Like, what what games did you play a lot as a kid? Well, we've talked about Flight Simulator on the show. Um, <laughs> do you do you had your Microsoft Sidewinder? Well, no, please. I had a, a yoke and foot pedals. Come now. The Sidewinder was used for non-flight sim games. Duh. Um, actually, I mean, Counter-Strike I played a, a ton of. Um, Age of Empires was another really popular one. Was that like um, like a open space planning uh, it's, game? It's, like it was um, like a simulation kind of, right? Like you build your real society? Time, real-time strategy or RTS, as the kids say. Is it... Um, fair to say that it's SimCity like, sort of like a SimCity in RTS. Um, no, not really. Okay, what's the difference? Well, Age of Empires was a multi competitive multiplayer game where, and it was just you know short rounds between like thirty and sixty minutes. Whereas oh, Sim okay. SimCity is like a progressive thing. Gotcha. So SimCity is almost like its own category. Okay. In fact, I think it really is its own category. And on that note, is does anybody make a good? I'm not sure if you ever played SimCity, but does anybody make a good one? Because I think SimCity tried to, or uh, Electronic Arts tried to remake it, and since they ruin everything, it's just a, like a big mess of in-app purchases. Do you know if anybody makes anything good like that, or was there ever a good version? Because I haven't played that in like a decade and a half. I, I think that might have been the last good version. Yeah. That's disappointing. Yeah. Hmm. So what, so what about you? There wasn't much. I had a PS2, and I, uh, I, enjoy, I always enjoyed racing games. But the only PC game I ever got into, and I would play all the time, on what was back then called MSN Gaming Zone. Oh, yeah. That's where I, that's where I played Age of Empires. <laughs> uh, was a game called Midtown Madness 2. Absolutely, yeah. Great You don't choice. know what that game is. I, of course I do. I, that was a game where we still had dial-up. So whenever I would play it on the MS Gaming Zone... We were only allowed to play for about half an hour or so, and then we'd have to get offline to free up the phone line. Were you one of those bad ping people that we'd always see in red and we were like, get out of our room? No, not really. I mean, this was still an era where a majority of people had dial-up. The thing that we were missing was having a separate phone line so that we, you know, we could just be online as much as we wanted. <laughs> but yeah, that's the only game I played like into the ground. Midtown Madness 2 was the one with San Francisco, right? San Francisco and London. Right. Yeah. Then they remade it for the Xbox 360, but I never had a 360 until 
uh, way, way later. Yeah, they did remake it, but I, if I remember correctly, it, it was an okay game, but I don't think it was, you know. Well, I think just the multiplayer stuff wasn't as robust because it was it was uh, console based. Well, they didn't I mean they didn't have the MS Gaming Zone, and there was a good modding scene with uh, Midtown Madness too. Yeah, that's the great thing about PC gaming's the the modding stuff. Or just you can do like custom vehicles and stuff, and they were like you can uh, hack the city and get uh, like um, a lot of cool extra stuff. I've always tried uh, or wondered about um, like finding an I- um, ISO or ISO of it and trying to run it in like VMware and play it for uh, old time's sake because it's been like fifteen years. Hmm. Yeah, that that could that could be maybe a topic on the show. Yeah, I'm sure it's probably illegal, but you know, fair use and all, and and childhood memories. Yeah, the whole the whole emulator scene is fascinating i've never i've always because i'm a big mario guy and i do enjoy like old classic nintendo but i assume that that was always just never worth it and that the controls would never match up so any like nes or game boy emulators would always just be a huge waste of time well that's the thing is people are finding ways to hook up these old controllers to usb like there are um usb interfaces for i know for sure the nintendo 64 that one's out there and i'm sure if you look hard enough you can find ones for the original Nintendo, PlayStation 2, whatever you what, wanted. What about the uh, original NES light gun? Ooh, that'd be a good would, one. Would that even work with an LCD? Well, there's something about how you can just like set up a couple of candles on the sides of your TV and do something crazy with the light gun. Because like, that's all it... I, I don't know. Like, it, it's similar. Do you know how like with the, the Wii, instead of the sensor bar, you can actually just use candles as no. well? Yeah. Well, I gotta look this up. Candles, well, don't don't look at a sensor bar. Okay, I guess Google's quick enough where you can maybe do this on the show. Well, I have to you know kill some some dead air here. Yeah, well, I'm on Comcast, so now <laughs> it's fine. Candle sensor bar. Yeah. Re- uh, CNET. Replace your Wii <laughs> sensor bar. Dot 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 romantically. Yes. Ugh. Okay. Anyway, this is this is not productive. Yeah. Oh, it's written by Tom Merritt. I actually will read this. Are you going to read it like on the show as we record here? Or, no, um... no, it's fine. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so. All right. So Midtown Madness 2, that was good. Uh, I was uh, Windows 3.11. I always enjoyed playing Ski Free. Don't know if you know what that is. I don't know what that is. It's a, it's a game where you, uh, it was a value add for Windows 3.11 for workgroups uh, that was uh, just skiing. And you can only go like up, down, left, right, and you just had to avoid all the trees. And halfway down, there would be an abominable snowman that would come eat you. Hmm. Let me see if there's a Wikipedia article on this. Yeah. Well, what would you ever in school? You ever play that math game where you had to go math up blaster? The... No, there there was math blaster, which was good, but then there was another one where you had to go up the mountain. No. It was like math mountain, or not, that's not, it's not what it's called, but. It, it was it was like a math it's, game. It's, it's a math game where you have to go up a, ma- a mountain. It's, it's just it's called, called Math Mountain. mountain. Right. <laughs> I think that's called the Nutrition Pyramid. Or wait, it's called uh, the Food Pyramid. Damn it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Ski Free was good times. I liked um, Hardball. I don't know what that is. Yeah, that was uh, also on our... I don't know what version of Windows this was, but it pre-Windows you know pre Windows 95. <laughs> I Googled for it and it brings up Chris Matthews. Um, Windows game. I wonder if I Google search Math Mountain if that'll actually um resolve our question here. Well, Math Mountain is actually a thing, so uh, yeah, I I don't know. It'll it'll come to me at some point. If if not during the show, I'll I'll look it up and we'll have some follow up for next week. 
Oh, nice. What? Old-games.com. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, all that's actually stuff. a surprisingly... Uh, this looks awesome. Oh, it's got Candlestick Park in there. Yeah, all that, all that stuff's there. Nice. I remember back in the day that old... Uh, I think it was called old-version.com was a good resource whenever um, there'd be like a new version of Real Player or something that would just like screw everything up so you can go find the old version of something again. Good days. Computers used to be so much easier. Oh, I that that could not possibly be any more untrue. You, I am much happier with like Windows shareware and like stuff for like Mac OS seven on the internet, like in a, in a Aladdin stuff at file. I literally, to... I literally just updated my operating system on my laptop as a software update this afternoon. Computers did not used to be easier than they are today. They did. There weren't in-app purchases for Windows 3.11. Well, in-app purchases don't necessarily make things more complicated. They, they just make, make they things, make the experience worse. They just make things kind of scummy. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I prefer shareware. Although not not all in-app purchases are bad. To Most be clear, of them are, dude. I, I just miss when the time when stuff costs money. But like upfront. Um, I hate having to unlock everything. Dan Benjamin has said, I don't know what the exact quote of his is, but he, he talks about like the idea of when, you, when it's clear what you're paying for. Something like that. Exactly. Like If there's a game where I'm going to get a whole lot of value for it, I do not mind uh, spending 10 to $20 on it. If you, just, if you just tell me that's what it costs. Don't try to get a dollar to $3 out of me every other day for like the next two months. Right. And I think that's where when, when in-app purchases in games or any, any other piece of software, it, when it's clear what you're getting and when you buy it, you're, you're not, you know, you don't get keep, you don't keep getting, you know, pinged for buying more stuff, then I think it's okay. And also, I just have a, like a ideological disagreement with games where you can pay to get ahead. Well, I think it's just, if you have to pay to get ahead, doesn't that just mean that your game's not fun? But that's every game now. No, like that's that's the, that's the EA approach to things, like where well, mobile games. But the the thing, like with console games and PC games too, is this idea of you know DLC. Well, isn't so, there also like exclusive DLC, like where you get better like stuff depending on where you buy the game? Which sounds like the dumbest thing in the world. It's where you buy the game, what console you're playing it on. Sometimes like, a combination that's so of the silly. two. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like this is tech, software's getting worse. Like everything's getting better, but the business practices are getting crappier all around. Well, but then at the same time, operating systems are now free. So I, I don't know. It's it's a it's a it's a changing world. Microsoft okay, Microsoft is trying to battle irrelevance by trying to make to give Windows away to almost anybody. And OS ten doesn't need to cost money anymore because all they want to do is sell you Mac hardware. So they've just established that that's just not even something they're gonna to try to make money on anymore. Like remember when it used to be $130 for like releases 10.1 to 10.6 and then they're like okay it's $30 oh now it's 10 now just fuck it take it mm -hmm. yeah so again they just want you to buy max so what, what are they going to do give it away for free mm -hmm. anyway all right fancy new iphones what else happened this week i mean yeah new iphones new operating systems everything happened this week it, it all happened in the last well eight days since we recorded early last week well, new operating systems we might want to hold off for a day because I because uh, it just came out today and I haven't had a chance to install it. Okay. Well, it's yeah. I mean, I I've installed it on one of my machines, but yeah, I guess I don't have a, a ton to say. Maybe we can we'll hold off on that until next week. Sure. All right. So new iPhones. What else? 
Well, I mean, should we just get into the new iPhones and we'll we'll kind of figure it out from there? I think that's that's usually our best shows. Sure, and then we definitely have to talk about TiVo. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess with the with the new iPhone, it's sort of like two pieces to talk about. I think it's the the purchasing experience and then the phone itself. D- do you agree? Yeah, go okay. for it. Yeah, so the the purchasing experience. So. I had made my feelings well-known uh, last week and probably the week before, too, about how I was just sort of skeptical of the iPhone upgrade program. It, it's just one of those things that kind of seemed too good to be true, and Apple had never really done something like this before, so I just felt like it was going to be just something was just going to go wrong. And sure enough, last Friday, the day these phones come out, there are a couple of articles and a big thread on, was it Mac, Ru- Mac Rumors was where that big thread was? That, and there was some uh, Link Beatty story on Business Insider. Yeah. Uh, people having tons of problems with the iPhone upgrade program. People who claim to have perfect credit, who were getting declined, and all kinds of uh, problems. And so when I was seeing this on Friday afternoon, I thought, oh, great. Yeah, this, this is exactly, exactly how I thought this was going to go. Um, but you know, I, I still, uh, still decided to give it a try when I got to the store. Um, and you know, I, I thought that, well, if it didn't go well, I would go ahead and just purchase the phone at, you know, full price, sell it a year later, ultimately get to about the same place. Uh, so I had a six thirty appointment at the, the local Apple store, uh, showed up kind of right at six thirty. Uh, there was kind of two lines outside the store, one for people who had reservations and then one for people who didn't. Um, they were still at 6.30 p.m., uh, still letting people walk in and, and buy phones without a reservation. I think think they only had 16 gigabyte models, but, I mean, you could you could technically go in and, and still buy a phone same day. Um, uh, so the, you know, the, the, that part of the process was probably the worst because, again, I got there at 6.30. It was kind of a 6.30 to 7 reservation window, um, and I didn't get into the store until pretty close to 7.30. So I was outside for 45 minutes to an hour, uh, which was not great. But when I got into the store, I was in and out in less than 10 minutes. Um, got a really, really great sales rep. You could tell he had, he had done this probably 25 times uh, you know, that day. He was super quick, you know, got the phone real fast. Uh, yeah, I went through the iPhone upgrade program. He, he, in fact, the guy just kind of assumed that that's what I wanted to do, probably because I had an iPhone six in, you know, currently, and um, yeah, no, no problems at all. Um, yeah, I was instantly approved, uh, signed the receipt, and I, I was on my way. Um, so you know, for me, the purchasing experience was was pretty pretty great. Um, and the plan was for me to let you know how it went, because I think my reservation was like an hour or so before yours. But uh, little did I know that by activating this new phone, it was going to uh, kill service to my existing phone. Um, for some reason, I had just sort of thought that these unlocked phones going to the iPhone upgrade program would not have a SIM card in them, and then that you would you know, simply take the SIM out of your current phone and put it into the new phone. And that's where, you know, service would transfer. Uh, but it turns out this phone I got had an AT&T SIM card already in it, uh, which I was really surprised. And uh, so the phone activated as soon as I purchased it. So I was not able to, uh, to text you to let you know how it went. So you, you ended up taking, I think, a slightly different approach. Yeah, I just bought it. 
at full price. Which is regular price. I don't like. I just didn't. One, I knew it wouldn't work, or based on what I'd heard, for some like uh, the iPhone upgrade program is perplexing to me in the sense that I don't understand why it still has some attachment to your phone account. Like I think, like let's say you just wanted to just get a phone. I don't see what the difference to them would be for you to just say I want to buy it and I'm going to put it on whichever carrier I want. I'm not sure. I don't understand why they would care. Well, and yeah, that was. We we talked about that last week, and then that was the part of the process I paid the most attention to. And when it when it got to the part to enter my AT and T information, um, you know, there was a place to put in like my username and password for my account. And I you know pulled out my existing phone to to pull open one password to get my AT and T password. And the guy's like, "Oh, actually, you know, don't even worry about the password; it's fine." And so, which that's concerning, but okay. so so we left the password field blank, and and sure enough, you know. It it just it got right into my account, um, so yeah, I, I I still don't fully understand what the connection is, and I still don't fully get how I got an unlocked phone that already had an AT and T SIM card in it. I guess are you sure it's unlocked? No, I'm not, and that's that's the I, thing I do because AT and T because again Apple makes they make an unlocked GSM model which they generally reserve for T Mobile, and then they have AT and T phones which come locked by default usually. Verizon phones that are natively unlocked by law, and then Sprint phones that nobody cares about Sprint. So, like, I mean, I don't. I'm that phone's probably locked, man. Well, so it's weird because I, you know, immediately went online to, to find out. Okay, how do you find out if an iPhone's unlocked? And I, I thought there just would be some simple thing in the settings menu that would tell you. You just have to find another carrier SIM, right? Yeah. Well, so there's apparently some hacky way where if you go into the cellular menu. If a certain data option is present, then that's usually an indication that your phone is unlocked, but it that doesn't always tell you. Um, and so for me, that option isn't there, which is a sign that it's locked, but again, not always. Is it the one where it's right below personal hotspot? It'll say carrier? It's, no, 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 no. It's something else. I forget what the name is. Uh, but anyway, it's it's not a surefire way to find out. And But the only way to actually find out is by putting in another carrier SIM card. Yeah, which I right. mean, I don't, which I don't have. So you know, yeah. I, so it's it, it's it's not really that big of a deal. Like I still, but I, I think I just think it's weird for I don't know. I don't understand why they do it. But um, yeah, I en- ended up just uh, backing out and just being like, you know, because I was in a rush. I only had like ten minutes to get in and out. I'm just like, you know, I'm just gonna buy it and then be done with it. And also, I mean, I wasn't super on board with the Apple Care thing just because I've never bought it and I've never used it. And I think the like the number of times I've never bought it would make up for whatever it would cost to get my screen placed if I ever really did break it. So, I don't know. I, I just went for it and it's fine. I think, yeah, net-net, you, you end up at about the same place by buying it full price and then just selling it a year later. Yeah, like again, I don't enjoy eBay or having to deal with that kind of stuff, but it's really not that bad. It's a it's a bit of a hassle, but right, it's it's not not the worst thing. The only thing I want to know is how is this going to pan out next year? Are they going to like in terms of what the pre-order type situation is if you're on this program because it would be it would really stink if you um didn't get to do like a pre-order or reservation if you're on this program. No, I I I doubt it. I wouldn't put it past them. If you know, if, if anything, I could see them going the opposite direction. Like you get priority if you're on the iPhone upgrade program, right? As a way of promoting it. Uh, I don't think so. 
I don't I don't necessarily think that's what they're going to do like next year or anything, but I I could see them doing that at some point. But no, I, I don't I don't see that being I don't see that being an issue. Um but anyway, yeah, so I I mean for me the the process was fine. Again, I the only thing I'm a little unclear of is whether my phone's actually unlocked or not. Um but you know, it it it, it activated just fine. Um and yeah, I mean, I guess that kind of segues right into the actual phone itself, unless you've got anything else to say on the, the purchasing side. No, I think it's uh, it, that's pretty much it. The only thing I thought during the pre-order process that was a little bit strange is just how, like it, it did, like if that you you missed the little available for reservation in store thing at the top of the Apple Store app. Like I guess it just wasn't obvious obvious enough how to do it, and then you got dumped into this like the Safari window. Where it looks like you didn't even need to do any of that. Yeah, that that part was really weird. Yeah, but it all worked out. It did, especially because they've done the reservation thing in the past, and that was all done within the app. Yeah, but anyway. So tell me about the phone. Yeah, so the, I guess then the with the phone, the place to start is the setup process. So I uh, did an iCloud backup, uh, like I've always done, um, and. Um, that that part was great. Um, you know, this is now what the third iPhone where I've I've done just an iCloud backup and restore, and had absolutely no no issue. All my apps downloaded just fine. Um, photos were there. We I we meant to last week talk about uh, iCloud photo library. Maybe we'll maybe we'll come back to that because I I just enabled that a couple of weeks ago, and you know so that now that that was up and running before I went through this process. Um, but yeah, the everything restored just fine. Um, you know, I, I the, the well, well, I guess we'll, we'll get to the issues in a minute. But in in terms of my data and in terms of my apps, everything everything made it okay. Um, you, I'm guessing you did a uh, restore from iTunes. As we talked about uh, Midtown Madness earlier today, I think that's a safe safe bet. I'm an old school computer person, and I do not trust new things. <laughs> so therefore, no, I did not trust iCloud at all. So I did the old uh, backup and restore with iTunes, which worked pretty seamlessly. Um, yeah, and I'd already been on iOS 9 on the other device, so I'm sure that helped a touch. But yeah, it, it, it was pretty straightforward and easy to do. Yeah, I was worried that on my iPhone 6, I was on iOS 9.0.1, and the phone came with 9.0, but the, oh, sorry, the 6S rather came with 9.0, and that, that did not present any issue. Yeah, same for me, where it, it restored on top of it, and then afterwards prompted me to upgrade the software. I'm like, ooh, all right. right. Yep, exactly. Um, but, so, it, it went well overall, but it, by no means was it was it perfect um and, and for me the the place where it really broke down was with the apple watch um so i you know as as my apps were starting to download and the the restore was finishing i went onto apple's website and you know kind of looked to see if there was an official guideline as to how you were supposed to transfer your apple watch from one phone to another and there was and so the article talks about what you're supposed to do on your current phone which is you're supposed to go into the Apple Watch app, and then in the kind of general settings area, there's an unpair this Apple Watch from this iPhone button. And so I clicked that, and nowhere does it tell you in the app, but when you do that, it completely wipes your watch and, and resets it back to, to factory condition, which, by the way, takes a while. It takes probably about 15 minutes to do on the watch. 
So that caught me completely off guard. And then I went, well, shit, now I've like lost all of my apps. I've lost my app layout. I've lost everything that I've customized on the watch, all my glances, all that kind of stuff. Well, no, you haven't. Well, no. So I didn't, but that was my initial thought. So I was like, well, great. Um, so then I paired the watch with the, the new phone. And um, when I did that, it prompted me to uh, restore from a backup. And I guess the way that the backups work is whenever you do an iCloud backup or an iTunes backup on your phone, your watch data is also included within that because the most recent backup available for my watch was the same time that I had done the the most recent backup on my phone, which was just a few minutes before I, you know, turned on the success. So that was nice. But again, you know, restoring from that backup took another probably 20 minutes. So this is close to like a 45, 35, 40 minute process on the watch and it, it just ultimately seems completely unnecessary like i don't know why you have to completely wipe your watch just to transfer the phone that you're using it with i mean i when i upgraded from uh my old iphone 6 to the uh final build from the developer site of ios 9 um i did i guess i was prepared for that because it erased my watch without telling me like i did the restore and somehow it knew that it was no longer able to talk to that phone so the watch erased itself and i was like oh what on earth happened and then when i booted it back up it was still there and had um an old backup but yeah it was it it's something that you're not warned about and takes about an hour and a half from start to finish but i'm not really sure how they would warn you about it because it sounds like just kind of a crummy situation to have to inform the user about but i'm not really sure it just seems unnecessary why why do you why do you have to do this to begin with why isn't there just an option to transfer the phone that the watch is talking to well you just can't because that's not how bluetooth ids work Hmm. like it's just like when i do a backup and restore uh or a software reflash on the same exact phone it carries over all your paired bluetooth devices but if you do a uh, backup and restore on the exact same software version between two different devices, because the Bluetooth Mac ID that's inside of the phone is different, you'll find that there are zero paired Bluetooth devices. So I assume because the Apple Watch is such a um, specialized Bluetooth device that it needs to be paired from moment one to a particular Bluetooth Mac ID. That, that's fair, but then why do you have to erase all your data as well? Because I assume, like, just super deep down in the watch is it's all expecting to communicate with one Bluetooth ID. So if that phone's no longer present, it has to kind of start over. Hmm. Like, it makes sense to me. It's just I don't know how you'd explain that to somebody or really set the expectation of... Because I understand the technical reason of why it probably happened, but it just it doesn't sound great. I mean, all's well that ends well, I, I suppose, but... It was a fairly jarring and lengthy process. Coming off uh, off the heels of um, uh, that, like two hour iPhone uh, WatchOS two update, and having to try to download it and install it like six times, um, this didn't seem like a big deal. Well, fair. setting the bar low, <laughs> right? Um, and then I guess you know the other thing that is not great about restoring ios on on a new phone and um a, lo- a lot of this was discussed on this week's episode of upgrade I and mean, they actually discussed this i think really well um which is it's, it's just really it's really finicky 
between what you're going to get back versus what you don't get back. Um, what do you mean? Well, so things like Touch ID, you have you have to reset that up. Of course. Um, things like Apple Pay, all of your Apple Pay cards are are gone. You have to redo those. Um, I feel like I had to enter my iCloud password probably 18 different times, just ne- just needlessly, just throughout the first couple of hours of the phone. A little window would pop up says, "Hey, we need your iCloud password." The best part about those is I like that it, there's no way to really tell if the system is asking you for that or just some random thing trying to steal your iCloud password. Right. Because it doesn't matter what app you're in. You could you could be inside Facebook Messenger or something, and it just says, what's your iCloud or iTunes store password? Uh, should I type it? I don't know. Right. And I, you know, just like they discussed on Upgrade, I, I totally get the technical reason for things like Touch ID and Apple Pay, how those things can't be transferred over because they're, they're not even stored in iCloud to begin with. Um, they're not even stored in the phone's memory. That's right. Um, but it, it still ultimately leads to a really crappy experience when setting up a new phone because you are doing this restore where your phone mostly looks and acts the same, but then there's this random handful of things, which unless you're a total nerd and you understand this stuff, you're going to have no idea like what stuff to expect to be there versus not. And Apple, of course, doesn't document this anywhere. I'm not certain about that because when you're doing the guided setup on an iPhone after an iCloud restore, it prompts you to re-enable or reauthorize any of the credit cards or saved payment methods that you have with Apple. So I think that part is well. Automated. No, it, it only it only does that for the card that you have saved on your iTunes account. Yeah, it, it doesn't say, "Hey, we know that you had these four four cards previously on Apple Pay. Do you want to reset those up?" Like, so for me, I had four cards on my iPhone six. And the only phone or the only card it prompted me to reset up was the one card that I have on my iTunes account. And that setup process didn't phrase it in a way that was like, hey, we know that you had this on your previous phone. Let's go ahead and set this up again on your new phone. It, it was as if that card had never been a part of Apple Pay. Okay. I'll, I'll concede that. Um, and so, I mean, same thing with Touch ID. Like there, there's no, in the setup process, there's no reference to the fact that like, you know, hey, you had this before, but we need to go ahead and set this up again on your new phone. It, it, it was as if you've never used Touch ID before. Like that, J- Jason Snell talks about this on Upgrade. Like this whole process just needs to be better and more intuitive, especially in a world now where more and more people, because of how this pricing structure is working with phones now, are going to be able to upgrade every 12 months in a lot of cases, or maybe 18 months in a lot of other cases. You know, if, if people are going to be regularly upgrading their iPhones, this experience just needs to be better. I partially agree, but again, the two things that you're citing, I like, I, and, I, and I'll kind of give you the Apple Pay thing. I don't see where you're going with, or where where the big injustice about the Touch ID thing is, because I like was when you restore your iCloud backup, it doesn't save your old passcode. It prompts you to re-enable that as well. So I, I just don't. I, I think Touch ID and a device password are things that should like be fresh and new and are just part of the setup. Well, I, th- I think I, th- I think that's fair, but that should just it should just be laid out more clearly. So you're just saying you'd feel better if all the language of the welcome screen says, "Hey, I know you had an old iPhone. Let's do this again." Like I don't really see how it's different. I mean, to a layman, it almost when that initial setup process almost looks like your iCloud backup didn't work. So you, so so if if like uh, once your iCloud you, you the phone reboots after it finishes downloading the big chunk of stuff from iCloud, you would say like you'd be much happier if the initial screen you see says 
let's finish uh, getting your phone back up and running or something. Like, you think that would do it for you? Something that just acknowledges that this is not a new phone setup? That'd be a step in the right direction. And then maybe somewhere else along the setup process, there could be a screen that says, hey, you know, here are the things that we're going to restore for you from this iCloud backup. We're going to bring in your text message history, your contacts, your email, your apps, your home screen layout, you know, all this, all this kind of stuff. And then, but here's the list of stuff that we're not going to bring in. We're not going to bring in Touch ID. We're not going to bring in your Apple Pay cards. But don't worry, you know, these next couple of screens are going to allow you to reset all those back up. I don't want to be just, I don't want to like shoot you, but that, that sounds awful. And how like, so? Because for a regular user, if they have, like, because they should be able to think that, like, and I, I don't even trust this thought, but like, they should be able to think that an iCloud backup is an entire device backup, except for a few basic things. But if you start saying that iCloud brings back your text messages, your home screen layouts, and your accounts, then they'd be like, oh, what, what about my, uh, about my ringtones? What about my um, saved games? What about, like... If you start listing off what something does, you have to either be just so verbose about what it is, or you have to be super vague about it in general, and then just expect the minor hassle of having to set up the things that technologically are not feasible to back up. Like, I think you have to err on one side or another, and the safer bet is to be vaguer about it and just deal with a minor annoyance. Well, so what about just listing what doesn't come over then? I think maybe some language saying, because this is a new device, we'll have to reset up your passcode, Touch ID, and Apple Pay. I think that's a short and sweet one-sentence thing that would address most of this. Yeah. But I think once you start like uh, uh, enumerating what's, um, what is coming back, then, then that opens up the floodgates to just stuff. Okay, fine. But, so, but I think then having that list of what isn't there and what the setup is then going to help you reset up, I, I think that's something that needs to be there. Okay, sure. I'll give you that. Because I mean, I even I, I didn't know. I mean, I it, it, you know once I once I came across it, I, I was like, oh yeah, of course. Then this this makes sense technologically why this is happening. Well, and here's the thing that I don't want to um, egg you on, but if you go back to the to the watch setup complaint that you had when you set up the new phone, restoring from your old backup, and then you repair your watch, you then have to reload your cards on the watch again. You do, yes. So, Which, ugh, I mean, yeah, again, I, from a technology standpoint, I get it, but as Jason Snell said, again, on upgrade, like this just needs to be better. You know, Apple needs to figure out a way. I mean, yes, it's great that they're putting privacy first and security first. I, I admire them for that, but this, this has to improve. Well, if he's going to take that approach, then he should, I think software should be secondary. I think getting a bigger battery is what. Apple needs to be better at. Well, if we're just picking and choosing priorities, I'll deal with a, a mediocre set of backup and restore process, and uh, for a bigger battery. Yeah, I I will say that the so far my battery experience, <laughs> percentage by percentage throughout the day, is almost identical to the six. Of course it is. <sighs> anyway, so um, yeah. So what what, what uh, aside from that, just in day to day use, once it's all set up, what are your thoughts? Well, um, you know, I, I think a lot like what we talked about with the new iPad last week, so much of what's new in the software is dependent upon apps being updated to take advantage of that. So in the case of the iPad, it's the multitasking stuff. And now with the iPhone, it's uh, 3D Touch. 
Um, because, you know, apps which don't have 3D touch support built in, when you do a, you know, hard press on them, you just get this little three tap indication like, hey, this app hasn't been updated to work with this yet. So right now it's really just Apple's apps and a very small number of third-party apps which support 3D touch so far. And to be honest, in in the limited applications it's available on right now, I I don't find it particularly useful. So um I think it will be I just uh, so there's for me it's it's totally worth it for just one particular application where on my home screen one of my most used apps is OmniFocus and now if you uh heart press more firmly you get the four most common things I would want which is I want to put something new in my inbox I want to see my home view or if I want to see uh, today's forecast for to-dos and scheduling so that alone is worth just like the price of admission of a new phone um I think certain apps like that will do it well and also Evernote has um added support for that so it's easy to do a new note or open the camera for the purpose of a new note like certain apps do it really well i think apple's built-in apps do it less so like just the support for what has it is really weird like if you force press or what's the actual terminology i i don't know i think i've gone between press firmly 3d touch and force press whatever so like the one that completely perplexes me is if you press more firmly on the app store icon like the shortcuts are search and redeem a gift card like why yeah so i don't know and like uh, the clock i mean you who who how frequently is, is somebody creating an alarm from the home screen and then like photos there there's a lot of them where it just seems a little bit half baked for me my issue is more with the like the technology itself or kind of the ui metaphors that apple's trying to go for like inside um uh, text messages, or it will actually no, particularly the music application, and we'll probably end up talking about Apple Music later today as well. But inside the music application, if you want, um, do you have your phone handy? I do. So if you go into an album and you um, wait or not, okay. So if you go into the artist screen and you press firmly there, you can jump into an album view, and then you can press what seems unreasonably hard to force it into the regular view like those two actions could have just been done by just tapping on the album like i don't see how that saves any time because if you're trying to preview what's inside of something sure you can press more firmly on it but then once you like like i don't see where that saves time the only system-wide ui convention that i think is extremely good is inside a text message or an email where if you can press firmly on a link you can preview it in this little popover web view and then see if it's a website you would have gone to anyway. I agree that is in theory pretty good, but the fact that you have to continue to press, I, I think makes Well no, that... the difference is you just keep you just press a little bit harder and then it just opens in a permanent tab. Well, right, but if if you want to just preview it and then dismiss it, you, you just let go. Yeah, but you have to then kind of be in like that middle press to keep it in that preview view. Because if you press a little bit harder, it then brings it fully open. And if you let go, then it's gone. Yeah, I it's, it's kind of an it's kind of an uncomfortable position to have to hold that sort of slightly harder press. Well, no, you don't have to though. So uh, go to go to like our text. You you sent me a link earlier today. Yeah. So if you firmly press on it and just drag your finger down, but. Leave it on the screen, but don't leave it firmly pressed. 
And I say I pressed too hard, and it opened it in Safari. So if I press right... And then ease up on the press, but don't let it off the screen, and just drag your finger down. Or do you mean drag it up? No, down. Um, okay, so I'm pressing. And I'm, if, I, you try, if I try to bring my thumb down, it doesn't do anything. But if I go up, I have the options of open link, add to reading list, and copy. And it keeps the window there. So again, what I'm saying is that if you want to be able to look at the window but not have to keep pressing down hard, you can just drag your finger down and that unobscures what you're looking at and you don't have to continue to press firmly. No, but they, for me, when I do that, the window goes away. But just don't lift your finger off the screen. Again, you don't, you don't have to keep holding firmly, but just let it rest on the screen. Oh, okay. Now that makes sense. I, that's still... I again, it's mainly just to see, oh, what was this link? And I think that's very useful. And you can also do that with addresses and other things. So there are certain implementations of 3D Touch that I think are fantastic. Like what I, like what I think this is really good for is like if somebody sends you like a, a social media or a Twitter link, like um, it's way easier than having it go all the way into Safari and dump you out of whatever you're doing just to see 140 characters or something. And something else that's neat too is I, in, in our text message thread, you had in one of your texts called out a time. So you said like 930. And if I kind of press there it brings up my calendar that's kind of neat yeah like that stuff is very good yeah but most of the other ones are not like particularly inside the music app that's the one that really bugs me just because it's not useful and i like the peak and pop metaphor seems kind of forced like peaking is nice forced get it i didn't think of that but good job (laughs) me but again, like peaking makes sense to me, but the, the the level of not difficulty, but just how uncomfortably hard you have to press to get what is essentially what would have been just a tap like a generation ago doesn't doesn't really make sense to me. I do think it makes sense on live photos, though. Well, that's a whole that's a whole different topic that we can talk about. But OK, so anyway, do you want to do you have any other thoughts on 3D touch? Other than just waiting for more third-party apps to come out, I mean, I think that's going to be the key. And, you know, so far, we're just a few days in. And like I said, I mean, you can count the number of third-party apps that support 3D Touch on two hands, basically. Um, the, the support is extremely limited right now. Yeah. Well, once, once, you, once you get off your butt and um, start using OmniFocus, your life will be changed by being able to... Uh do an inbox item review your forecast without having to enter the app hmm. okay all right um do you want to do uh camera up next yeah um i haven't really had an opportunity to use it a ton i haven't really been in many situations so far where i've had to use the camera um but i it, it's noticeably better i mean it's i don't really know what more to say it it, it works better in low light situations the front camera is dramatically better than it's ever been before. Um, I mean, overall, it, it, it's simply it's it's simply a better, faster iPhone camera, which is which is awesome. Like it's like we've talked about, you know, the iPhone is my own one and only camera now. So anything Apple does to make that better is a a huge win for me. Yeah, seems pretty great. Um, I don't generally use the front facing camera if I can avoid it, so. I don't know about that, but I I do think the live photo aspect is probably the most interesting part of it, and I think there's a uh, I I have some thoughts on it's uh, the interface of how you interact with it and how you take the photos. But overall, I mean, the camera seems like a worthwhile upgrade. 
Yeah, I mean, without question. Um, but with live photos specifically, so I've played around with those a little bit, and I, I actually don't. I actually don't think they look that great. I think it's fine. What I would prefer is that um, live photos were on all the time, and that there was a there'd be a way to like. I wish the default, like a persistent default on the software, was that it, live photos are on. And then if I want to take a picture of just some documents or if I need to do uh, just like disinformation or if I'm shopping somewhere, then I can turn it off for short periods of time, but that I wouldn't have to remember to turn it back on. Because I do think they are useful. I just think they're not always appropriate. But I think I wish the phone would err on the side of taking them and then allowing me to I, I get flatten I, that's that's a weird like photoshop design word but like being able to say no i don't i just want this to be a still photo right because i think anytime you like i think the most useful live photos will be like coincidental or times when you don't realize you would have wanted it if that makes sense it does um i just wish the software was better for that where live photos could be the default but that it was easy to turn it off temporarily and not have to remember to turn it back on. Because there are some photos I took uh, this weekend that I wish it was still on, but those are still photos because I forgot to turn it back on. Hmm. So yeah, but overall, camera quality is pretty good. Yeah. But I don't really think the quality of the live photos is all that great. Well, of course not. It's not supposed to be. Yeah, but some people have said that they like that effect. They kind of like the low frame rate video. They think it actually looks kind of neat. I, I just think it looks bad. I think it looks kind of cool. I mean, maybe I just need to try it in some different situations, but from what I've seen so far, I I just don't think it's something I'm going to use. Sure. You don't have the magic in you. I gotcha. <laughs> um, uh, touch ID is, is insanely fast. Um, too fast, one might say. Too fast, one might say. Um, you can't check the time anymore. <laughs> no, I mean, so it, it's funny because, yeah, so like... I just did it right now where it used to be where when you would tap your thumb on the home button, you know, you'd, you'd get the, the home screen and be able to see like the time and any notifications that you had. Um, and then if you wanted to actually unlock your phone, you know, you'd, you'd rest your thumb there for an extra beat, then it would unlock the phone. But now literally when you tap the home button with your thumb, as long as you make half decent contact, your phone's going to unlock. Um, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, so I found that if I want to um, either, and also the problem for me is that I generally will activate the camera from the lock screen, and that also falls flat when you don't ever get to see the lock screen. So I've been getting more in the habit of uh, pressing the home button with my fingernail to uh, avoid that. That's I mean, it's kind of what you have to do. Yeah, but no, it's great. Because uh, I, I, that's the part that would bug me is that sometimes just the phone would, even if you, because I was very good at just the single like instance of the press, like where you'd press your finger on the home button, click it, but leave it resting there, and it would just unlock in one motion. And just sometimes it would take like three to four seconds on the old one. It just wasn't wasn't a great experience. Well, and you know, it's funny, even just after a day or two with the 6S, you sort of just become acclimated to that being the new standard. And so what I did the other day was had my iPad mini 4 and the 6S side by side and just, you know, was doing Touch ID at exactly the same time. And of course it, you were. It's, it's yeah, I know, nerdy, nerd alert. The crazy, crazy Tuesday night. Yeah, right. Um, and and sure enough, you know, it, it's significantly quicker. Um, it's pretty, pretty amazing. 
and and overall the phone too. I mean, the phone itself is also really quick. It's 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 very snappy. Um, so overall, I think yeah, it's it's a nice worthwhile upgrade. The the, the for me the the trickiest part or the uh, weirdest part is going to be three D touch to see if that gets adopted in a thoughtful way by most people because it looks like Apple themselves haven't really adopted it in a thoughtful way other than for certain minor things. The one thing I will say about 3D Touch that we didn't mention is that I do think the haptic feedback's really nice. Feel It feels right. It does. Yeah. I haven't... Um, yeah, I don't really use the vibration for anything else, so I can't really say if the vibration motor is better or worse because I never get um, notifications that cause it to vibrate because of the watch. It seems... The, the couple of times that I have, it, it seems too soft. Oh, so just like the watch. Right, exactly. I think the haptic feedback is good with 3D touch, but then I think when your phone just vibrates, I think it's too soft. Um, and if, from what I can tell, there's no way to adjust that. Hmm. So, but I mean, you know, to your point, now with the watch, my phone hardly ever vibrates anyway. So instead of, instead of missing the vibration in my pocket, I now miss it on my wrist. All right. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, you know, it, it seems like a, a good upgrade. Um, nothing completely revolutionary. Um, I guess the other, the, for the final thought, I guess, is sort of the, the general weight and feel. Um, it's, it's noticeably heavier, um, even after a few days of using it, like it still feels heavier than my old iPhone. Um, and I think that the back feels a lot different. It feels like it has a lot more, uh, texture than the six did it's that a uh, 6000 series aluminum yeah i guess so me and johnny were talking earlier are you, are you guys on a you're on a first name basis now we are mm. you saw that uh startup l jackson tweet right uh which one is the one about uh imagine how much uh if you hate autocorrect imagine how much it would suck to have the name johnny ive but it was i apostrophe v e <laughs> that's pretty good it is uh, but the, I think the, um, the, the feels really nice, the extra weight, you know, whatever, it's fine. But the, I think the actual kind of more tactile feel is, is, is great. Yeah, it feels nice. Particularly. I just like the weight. I just wish, uh, they actually went a bit further with that and there was a larger battery to come to. Well, sure. I'm not going to let that go. No, you shouldn't. Cause the problem is they won't ever deal with it. It's just going to keep getting thinner. Yeah. I think that about covers it. Sure. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to touch on another weekend is, uh, watch OS two. Um, I don't know if it's just the apps that I use or what, but I feel like there have been no watch OS two app updates. I feel like I haven't gotten a single one this entire almost two or I guess week and a half. Now this thing's been out. Well, because why should they care? <laughs> like, no, seriously. Like a a Apple screwed them and made them develop applications using a BS uh, development system where they don't actually get to run local applications and didn't get access to the device in advance and led to mediocre applications that nobody really likes, yet took a lot of development time. So now they should, within five months, rewrite them as native applications for a product that seems like it's not doing as well as they want to? Hmm like like that, that's the part where I, I just don't like i'm glad that the omni group and certain people that i do rely on have updated for native applications so like omnifocus is so much faster on the watch and it's more useful with the um 
new watch face complication that they've added. And I'm super happy uh, that they've done that. But I think for a lot of people, it's just like that's not a priority because you don't like you don't charge extra for watch apps. So therefore, it's just more work that they have to do for zero gain, particularly since I just think Apple burned a lot of goodwill with developers by just making them write was essentially a, a crappy application for I, I just. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think those are those are fair points, and it's ultimately leading to kind of a crappy experience because now with WatchOS two, because apps aren't really being updated, it it feels the same. Like it, it really it doesn't seem to be much of a, a difference. Yeah, I mean, when you get a good native app on there, it is so much faster. But yeah, and also I just I, again they shouldn't have released apps with the watch. I think early adopters, like any early adopter regular users, are probably just thinking, oh. So I guess just this this device is bad at apps. Cool. I'm probably not going to try them again. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully that'll continue to improve over the next couple of weeks because, again, so far, watchOS 2 has been kind of a, a letdown. I, uh, th- these multicolored fitness rings, man. Oh, I, I, love, I love them. Not good. The, I think the, the, multicolor, the multicolor modular face is awesome. Don't like it at all. But I have... Um, I'll send you a screenshot later, but I do like that I've kind of tweaked a nice productivity watch face where I've got um, OmniFocus in the middle and then on the bottom row, current uh, current date, uh, next event in a really nice small window that shows you just the time it's happening, which I think is fantastic, and then the timer. And then for like off days, I have uh, one with just the weather in the middle. So I'm, I'm becoming more of a fan of tweaking uh, watch faces and having like a separate modular face for... Um, non-work days hmm what is what does the train think eh, he th- he's more of an android guy oh got it um okay so then the, the, la- the last major topic i have we, we want to kind of keep this to, i think a shorter show this week got, got a little bit of a late start and our, our last couple of episodes have been kind of a doozy um uh, tivo um so what, what was the, was this announced just today or did people see this coming I I I had not heard a single peep about this until today. Dave Zatz always uh, sees it coming. What? Dave Zatz? I don't know who that is. You've never seen ZatzNotFunny.com? No. Okay, I'll send you the link. Okay. So there's a guy named Dave Zatz. He's been like kind of the, he's uh like he's been like the TV uh, the TiVo DVR blogger for like the past decade and a half. Like if you ever want to know anything about Apple TV, Chromecast uh TiVo or like any any of the like streaming boxes and like smart home stuff he's he's uh, a great person to read. Hmm, okay. Yeah, ooh, Roku 4. <laughs> um so yeah, so this this is the TiVo Bolt. Um reviews came out today. It's going to be available next week. Um you know, I get like overall, it seems like you know a, a new TiVo box. Um, the interface, I think, by and large, is the same. A lot of what it does is mostly the same. Um, the things that are significantly different are the design. The hardware looks dramatically different, and I think worse, worse. But um, anyway, um. The the kind of the headlining feature, uh, what is this called here? Um, a skip mode, uh, where with with one press of a button you can skip commercials uh, completely. So when a commercial break comes up, you press a button and it 
automatically get you right back into the program. And um, apparently, um, this so this this Verge review says that this is actually being done by humans, because <laughs> uh, it so it only works on recorded TV shows and it only works for um, certain networks for shows between a certain time. So it's kind of a it's, it's a it's a limited population of stuff that works with this, but. I mean, the consensus seems to be that when it does work, it's pretty great. Yeah, I assume that's going to get them sued, but... That's kind of what I... That was my first thought, too. But also, like, I don't... I don't mind skipping commercials. Because there's, like, there was... um, Again, I'm not sure if you were into DVRs back then, but there was a company called Replay TV that was the chief competitor to TiVo during the TiVo Series 2 days. And they had, they had an automatic ad skip function, um, and they got sued out of existence. So I don't know that that seems like that's going to be tricky, and also what what was the deal? Do you remember uh, like Dish Network had something called the Hopper? They did, and I think it was something similar. Like it it tried to also skip ads. Like I think that's the part where going back to like the ad blocker discussion from last week is just when it happens automatically. That that's tougher when you give the like the user the choice to uh, skip over stuff. I don't know. It's 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 an interesting selling point, and uh, you'll you'll let us know how it goes. So have you already ordered it? I, I have. So the the really interesting thing, so I, I checked this and double-checked this today, but so the math on it as an existing TiVo owner is one of those things that seems too good to be true. Um, so it's it, the, the base model, which is 500 gigabytes, is $300. And so with that $300, there's two key things. The first is you get your first year of service for free. And then the second thing is from that point forward, so your second year forward, the service that you buy is $149 for the entire year. And right now with my TiVo Romeo, I'm paying $15 a month, which ends up being, you know, 180 or so dollars a year. So right off the bat, I am going to get a year of service. So that's would have otherwise been $180 with my current TiVo. And then, of course, I can sell my current TiVo on eBay or, or whatever. So presumably, you know, I'll probably basically between those two things, basically pay for the $300 right off the bat. And then on a go forward basis, I'm paying about $30 less per year for the service. So and, and of course, I'm getting a newer, you know, faster box with some new features, Um including the ability to stream and download shows onto my iOS devices, which my base model Romeo doesn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just it, as, as an owner of the current Romeo, like, I don't see why you wouldn't upgrade to this. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't make sense for a Romeo Pro user, but, yeah. And you, I mean, don't you, you have, like, the TiVo lifetime thing, don't you? No, I pay monthly, just because the TiVo lifetime's 500 bucks up front. I just can't, that's, no. Mm. I, th- I thought you had that. No, I, I have the Romeo Pro. I splurged on that, but otherwise, no. So are you, you're not going to upgrade to this? No, because it would take my storage space. Like, Because the Romeo Pro has two terabytes of space and records six things at once and has the, the streaming tuner built in. Also, does the, doesn't, there's a $400 version of the Bolt, right? It still doesn't record six things at once and still do, it's, it's still um, so one terabyte space. Yeah. yeah. But then, but so how much do you pay for your service? 15 a month? Uh, I think 
10 because i'm i've been a subscriber since 2005 got it okay Ooh, it's, it's my 10 year anniversary of tivo wow what should i get him <laughs> um but yeah i mean right i mean like for me it just it just kind of seems like a no-brainer yeah let me know how it is i i just the the funky shape man i know it it almost it reminds, make... me of the, reminds me of the boxy box that i owned yeah you remember that thing i do yeah this makes me almost want to put it in a part of my TV cabinet where you can't see it. It's unstackable. Yeah. Well, the, the TiVo I have, the, the place it's in now doesn't have anything stacked on it, so that's fine, but I just also don't want people looking at it. What do you mean? I just don't want people to see it. <laughs> it's that hideous? <laughs> well, we'll see. The pictures aren't very flattering. I've sent you a link. This is what the, the bolt reminds me of. <laughs> I like that. Oh, see otters make everything better. These are these are otters trying to stack cups and getting frustrated. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. All right. Um, there were a couple of other big things, big things this week. Oh, put fire away. I'm trying to think. Oh, Apple Music. Well, again, well, hold on. We gotta find something that's not Apple. Hmm. Oh yeah. Well, oh, damn it. It's still, it's still Apple. But do you want to talk about um? Uh, the Microsoft thing, the Office for iPad Pro. Oh, sure. So that was something that you sent me that that I had missed uh, that fell off my radar, but I thought was super interesting. Is that because um, the iPad Pro is being p- pitched like kind of as the name implies as more of a professional's device for people who want to do maybe more uh, cr- uh, creative work or actual like content production, um, and that's why it's going to attract a better audience and command a higher price, and hopefully will have more expensive software on it that allows for this to happen because it certainly hasn't happened with the regular iPad. And rumors are that the Microsoft Office applications that are currently given away with maybe like 70% of the features that people would want for free right now on the phone and the regular iPad, apparently on the uh, 13-inch iPad Pro, you will need to be an Office 365 subscriber because there is a 10.1-inch cutoff uh, anything below 10.1 inches is quote a true mobile device and as such qualifies for free access to the core editing capabilities but above that threshold it's not a quote unquote true mobile device any longer it is something else entirely and it will need an office 365 subscription as a result so i just find this super interesting yeah i mean on on one hand it does feel like you you have to separate it somehow if you've decided that you, you need to have different pricing structures for the two different devices. I think you should draw the cutoff at seven inches, though. Let the, let the many people have it for free. <laughs> iPad Air 2, they're getting stuff done. So that so that so that's the funny thing is, you know, how, how do you make that determination? That That's sort of the funny part. It's just like, it's funny because it, like you have to. Yeah, no, I know, but I just like like I think what they should do is they they should be like if if you like uh, it searches your Bluetooth connected devices and if you have a keyboard in there they charge you more. Hmm, that makes total sense, right? That's a thought because you probably get more done. I don't know. It's just because somebody has to because this whole system of iOS applications being freemium or like three dollars is not going to cut it, especially on the Pro where it's going to be a limited audience device. And if you're going to invest the time to make these fancy applications, you have to charge more. And there's got to be a start. And I think this is a decent start. Hmm. Uh, looking at this Apple type cover is funny. 
How so? Because it's the Microsoft type cover. No. You saw that comic, right? No. I can't believe that's $169. Of that. course it is. Everything up. It's it's just I actually think the the pencil price, the hundred dollars, I think that's relatively reasonable. Although I actually think it should just come with the device, but um, that's the part. Well, we, I don't think we've talked about that, but I really uh, it bugs me that like or I just think that if they really want the pencil to be a new type of input device and they want it to not just be an accessory for artists, they it should be bundled and like if you're all if the starting price on this thing is already like seven ninety nine, what's an extra fifty or a hundred dollars? It's not the entry level device, so just go for it. Right. Like the the keyboard, definitely not. That should be an accessory, but the the pencil should be there. Yeah, I I completely agree. All right, and I sent the comic over. Thank you. That'll play real well over uh, radio. Yeah. Hey, the the otter the otter gifted. Yeah, I'm still kind of looking at that. It's pretty good. <laughs> um, all right, well, what else you got? Um, and let's talk about Apple Music. Okay. And how I am sticking with Spotify. Okay. I am sticking with Spotify. <laughs> I've canceled the auto renew. And I, because I just, I don't, the music application is just way too busy. And I think it's not very good for music discovery the only big plus that it had for me was that i was able to take the the music i already owned that was getting synchronized to my device through itunes match and it allowed me for like my workout or like run uh playlists to be able to integrate new stuff that i don't own yet into that same like type of commingled playlist and i can't really do that with spotify but spotify for everything else music discovery and just app usability, it's it's way simpler and way better. So I let my Apple Music subscription renew uh, for the first time. I guess it renewed today. Um, I I don't love it, but I do think it's a lot nicer than Spotify in terms of how the app works and the UI. Hmm. Um, again, I'm I'm not I'm not wild about it, but I, I do think for on demand music, it's the best that's out there. Hmm. Yeah, I respectfully disagree, but that's that's interesting. I just I really just don't like the Spotify app. I just don't like how it looks, how it works. I I, I just really don't like it. And, and that's exactly what I would say about the music app. Like I think, particularly with the music app, what bugs me is that basically the entire music application is one tab. Like there's five tabs at the bottom four of which should not be there. Does that make sense? Yeah. And like I, I, for you and new and connect, maybe radio deserves its own tab. But like, I don't like that library and playlists and like finding music are all tucked away in a single tab and everything is just so nested down in there that it's, I don't know. They just, they made one application that used to be pretty decent at playing music, just super complicated. Cause I tried to force in this like, weird three-pronged music approach like nobody's ever going to use connect come on hmm. all right but i but i wish you the best and i hope it uh hope it works out let me know if it gets better yeah it's, it's a, it has been a little surprising that it does it doesn't really seem like they've done much to it since it first came out um but yeah we'll see all right anything else um let me go do let me do a quick check but i think that's it for me man 
Well, actually, do you want to talk about something super fast? Sure. Um, this yeah. is about Dropbox. Okay. Have you read some of the articles recently of the fact that Dropbox is probably never going to have their IPO? I, I haven't read that, no. So a lot of people... So do you use any of the products Dropbox has made that are not their core product? Like, do you use Carousel or their new... Um, they're doing like some collaborative like Google Documents like knockoff thing? No, I, I haven't used any of that stuff. Like, like a lot of people are arguing that fi- uh, online cloud file storage is going to become more commoditized and, and less important kind of in the way that Steve Jobs said that Dropbox is a feature, not a company or something like that. But in a lot of ways, it seems like that's kind of true. Like Dropbox does what it does extremely, extremely well. But anything that they've tried to do that's not like core file syncing doesn't go anywhere. And that that people are just saying that the valuations that they have now and just the potential for growth is really shrinking. And I think The Verge actually had a decent article about that for once. I don't know. Just basically, do you think do you, do you think that Dropbox has like a big future of doing anything other than what it does now? Because it seems like, I, I guess my point is that they don't seem like a company that's content to keep doing what they do how they do it. Well, I, I think that's any tech company has to feel that way. I don't. I don't think you can sit there and just be content with the way things are. I think you always have to think about what your next move is going to be. But if all of your next moves are failing, like particularly Carousel, which was a really intriguing but like flawed product that they have, that it doesn't beat anybody at anything. It's not better than iCloud Photo Library. It's not better than Google Photos. It's way more limited, and it still forces you to buy into this one terabyte at ten dollars a month. Dropbox Pro plan, like I don't know. It just seems I'm not. I'm not sure what what's gonna happen to Dropbox. Hmm. Yeah, I. It's it's hard to say. It, it's such a competitive space. Um. Yeah, it's it's really hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. Until Apple screws up and I have to move out of the iCloud ecosystem, we'll we'll just go from there. But again, I. But you're you're not uh, Dropbox's biggest fan anymore after it ate your uh, podcast editing. So yeah, I, I forget if we talked about that last. We week, did, but no, we did. Okay, yeah, it, it's super frustrating. Um, moving and moving it all to iCloud Drive. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, with that, we'll get we'll get people a short one. We've had a couple of multi-hour episodes, so we'll cut it short today. Okay, I think that sounds good.